I'm Tina Funder. And I'm Laurel Davis. Welcome to Work Like a Mother Father, a podcast about negotiating working parenthood, one positive conversation at a time. Being a man, you get the benefit of all this invisible work without having to see it or thank anybody for Mm. it or do it. And being a woman, you have to do it because otherwise you're not a good person. Mm. So to associate that so deeply with our sense of ourselves as people is how patriarchy works and it's how we are undoing it one podcast at a time. Tina is flying solo in today's episode, chatting to Anna Funder. Anna is one of Australia's most renowned authors and in a former life, an international lawyer for the Australian government focusing on human rights amongst other things. Anna's first book, Stasiland, was hailed a masterpiece, winning the BBC4 Samuel Johnson Prize in 2004, and it now appears on school and university reading lists across Australia. Her novel, All That I Am, won too many awards to list and remained a number one bestseller for months. And in 2011, the Sydney Morning Herald listed her as one of Australia's top 100 people of influence. Anna also gave Tina the scoop on her new book, which explores the very thing we're here to tackle on Work Like a Mother Father. Welcome, Anna. Actually, I should be saying thank you for having me because here we are at UTS in Sydney and we are very, oh, I am very excited to be talking to you today. So thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. It's nice to see you. Yes. Well, on that note, we should open with a full disclosure that we are related. We share the same surname. Unfortunately for me, not the same genes because, (laughs) wow, what what a phenomenon you are in the literature world. I get it all the time. Are you related to the author, Anna Funder? Oh, I apologise. <laughs> okay, let's start. We have some pretty exciting news. You're working on a new project and it's relevant to what we're, we're talking about on the podcast. And we just wanted to know what sparked the idea, first of all, of a book about working parenthood or working motherhood. We don't know much about it, so we'll let you explain. Yeah, sure. Look, uh, I came to it kind of... Tangentially, I was looking at uh, writing a relatively small piece about um, an author that I really admire and he was a big name 20th century author who I won't say who it is just yet but he, I was looking at his life and I was looking at the conditions of production for him. So what it was like to be a big male author in the 20th century And the more I looked at that, the more I saw that, you know, there's this famous quote from Cyril Connolly where he absolutely dreads what he calls the pram in the hall. And he says that the pram in the hall is the enemy for all writers and creativity. And I was kind of always struck by that. And that was about from the period of this writer that I was looking at and things. And so I thought, what did he actually mean by saying, because of course I have three children, I have had many prams in my hall. That's right. Um, And I just thought, what does he actually mean? And then when I thought about it some more, I thought, well, the pram in the hall was only an object for him in that uh, the noise from the pram might have interrupted his stream of genius as he sat there Mm. writing his books or whatever. Whereas for a woman writer, the pram in the hall is her job. That's what she has to negotiate. So if you are a woman writer, uh, the baby and the pram and the logistics of that and the feeding and the household and all of that domesticity and loving and caring and family making 
is your life. It's not just something that is possibly getting in your way as you're trying to make your work. So the conditions of production for a writer, this writer in particular, became very interesting to me. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go and look at that. And I read all of these biographies of this man in which his domestic life barely features because it is assumed for a male writer that, and possibly for any man doing anything, that all the logistics of having children, bringing them up, feeding them, loving them, caring them, taking them places, will be done essentially for you by someone else who remains, as it were, kind of unthanked and in the shadows pretty much in terms of your public life. So then I just thought, if I'm going to write about this, I need to have a look at my own conditions of production Mm. as you have it as a mother-father or as a mother-writer. So I'm really interested in what you're doing here in talking about work and parenting and mothering and what it is that we don't generally see about that. Mm. And this might be a really good um, point to ask you, You have one child who's about to start uni or is starting uni this year and then your youngest is midway through primary school. And so there's quite a, you know, it's been over a decade between children. So what were people talking about when you first had kids versus now? Have you noticed a shift in conversation regarding assumed gender roles? That's such a good question. So, yeah, there's... Um, seven and a half, eight years between my eldest and my little one. So 10, my little one is 10 and then 15 and then 18. I think I have noticed it and I've noticed it particularly in the last, say, three years since the Me Too discussion Mm. where it's become, it feels a lot less marginal in a way to be talking about the issue of the fairness or uh, split of domestic work And things like, you know, even the language of mansplaining, for instance, (laughs) which my kids will talk about at the dinner table. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, I think that, you know, if you've got words for something and if something is being discussed, it doesn't necessarily mean that the workload is being fixed, but it certainly means that you've got the words, i.e. the tools to address that issue. And I think that has really changed. Mm, Which is good. Yeah, (laughs) it's really good. And assuming that your book or your new project is set in Australia, do you delve into the systemic issues in place at the moment as far regarding supporting working parents um, and what, what were your findings? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't so much. This is more about, um, it's more about the writing life. But I do think in my own life a lot about those systemic mm. issues. So when my husband has, you know, meetings that are set for effectively any time after 2.30 in the afternoon uh, or at 7 o'clock in the morning or at 6 o'clock at night or the kind of compulsory socialising and drinks after work where a lot of important kind of work stuff happens mm. in a in the workplace, often um, male-dominated is too extreme, but a workplace that's set up around the fact that the man will be working or the person who's working is not the person who's looking after children. So I think that the world is not set up with uh, families and the needs of children at the centre. It's set up in a way that assumes unpaid and unacknowledged organisational and emotional work by women, essentially, which then supports the man doing what he wants. Mm. Of course, often it's a woman working as well. But what I've found in my life and my friends' lives is if if you're a woman and you have a very demanding career, 
essentially you pay people to, if you can, if you're able to, you're, you pay people to do the work which looks like it would be the woman's work. So perhaps um, cleaning, picking up after children, organising things. You might have a sort of domestic assistant, as it were. It doesn't actually fall to the man to replace the work that he's not doing, which in a 50-50 split would be his. It falls to the woman to organise someone to organise something. And that I, f- I find that that is really telling, you know, that it, that it's us that are organising domestic labour, whether we're doing it or not, we're organising yeah. it. And also restricts a lot of people who can't afford... Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that, that. then people are really, really stretched. Mm. Women are really stretched doing a lot more domestic work mm-hmm. and then also work for money. So. Mm. Or maybe even never entering the workforce because of that and those demands. So... You've been a human rights lawyer in the past and obviously you're a mum of three children. Do you believe that as parents we have some form of collective responsibility to each other and how can we join forces to influence change so that we can all work equally, feeling supported and without stigma? That is such a good question. That is the question. When I was researching what became the novel All That I Am, Uh, The main character in that novel is a woman called Dora Fabian who was a feminist. She didn't have children. She was a feminist in the 1920s in Germany and she was also an economist. She had a PhD in economics and she just said, look, women will never be truly able to be equal until they are liberated from the obligation to look after the home. And so what we need is for society to take on a lot of that work because it shouldn't be delegated, in a sense, individually to women in the home. So we need to have communal, in her idea, it was communal kitchens. Mm. So for every, and this actually did exist in Vienna, um, which is not seen as a hotbed of radical (laughs) socialism usually. (laughs) But in Vienna in the early 20th century, there were communal kitchens sort of organised per block where you would pick up your dinner on the way home. In fact, you see in lots of Asian countries, people pick up street food on the way home or in China or whatever. I think that the expectation to have, you know, individual meals created every night for four or five people or a family is something that could be collectivised a lot a lot better, for really instance. Really interesting theory. I love that. Yeah. Now, your own experience of becoming a mother, you were writing Stasiland around the time of your first child being born. So, yeah, how did you find that pram in the hall <laughs> impacted your work? So I had, uh, my eldest was born um, six weeks after Stasiland, no, six weeks before Stasiland came out. And it was really interesting when I look back on it, I had no idea really what I was doing in either situation. Yes, it was a, yeah, it was a scenario first in both instances. Wow. So those that kind of double ignorance collided sometimes. So I can remember Imogen was like six weeks old or something and I had to do an interview on ABC Radio and uh, I, I just can't believe the foolishness of this, but I, I had no one to look after this baby and my husband was travelling a lot. He wasn't home for the first, like, three weeks of her life and I didn't have any family here and so on. And so I took this small baby who I thought was no m- much bother to anybody down to the ABC studios here at Ultimo. I'm actually sweating at the thought of it. <laughs> and I thought, well, they've got childcare there, so I'll just rock up and I'll say, can you look after her for 15 minutes? 
can you believe the ignorance of this? Well, <laughs> well, I go upstairs and do this interview. And I rang them before and they said, no, no, you've got to be enrolled and checked and we just don't look after people's babies. So I was running into this world where if you had a baby, it was there was no support. You had to absolutely pay for babysitting for every single hour that you wanted to do anything at all. And I had no one to do that. So I took this baby in with me up to the studio and I thought maybe the technician, she was asleep in a pram in the hall, maybe the technician wouldn't mind just staying there while I go into the booth and talk to Drive Time Adelaide for 15 minutes. <laughs> and the technician looked at me like I was completely nuts. He never, he actually looked like he'd never seen a baby, certainly not in that corridor. He was probably about 12 himself. It was, <laughs> he was just like, no way. So then I thought, oh, well, okay. So I get, I pick her up and she's kind of asleep and I go into this studio and I said to them before we were live on air, look, I have to tell you, I do have this baby here with me and, you know, if you hear any weird noises, it's going to be her. And so then I'm talking away and I'm talking about surveillance and East Germany and the Stasi and all of this oh. stuff and then there's these weird noises. So then I have to get my breast out. So I'm kind of like <laughs> trying to talk about the Stasi in this serious way to drive time Adelaide while I'm unbuttoning <laughs> and sticking this kind of fractious baby onto the breast. And eventually it was too much for the dri- like drive time Adelaide and they just said to me, oh, well, we do hear you've got company there and then I had to kind of come clean. Now I think about it, it's insane. You know, any, any kind of qualified inverted commas mother would know you just have to get a babysitter but that was that was what happened to me on the upside I have to say I think once you get behind a pram I wasn't a young mother I was 35 but you get behind a pram you are automatically then invisible from all the ordinary kinds of harassment that women get when you're walking down the street or whatever so you know catcalling stops, which is great. You know, you kind of have this gift of invisibility behind yeah. the pram, which might be, you know, you might it might be, you might not necessarily want that. But I found just psychologically for me, I was isolated and invisible kind of as a mother, but at the same time, just I was doing all of this massive amount of publicity for the book. So in a way, even though it was tricky to juggle, psychologically, it was probably quite good for me. I didn't feel that I disappeared into this sort of black hole of isolated motherdom because I was weirdly doing all the publicity at the same mm. time. And it's interesting that you raise that point about invisibility because I think it trickles into the workplace for part-time working mothers as well. So in the same sense that you become invisible to a certain amount of the public eye on the straight behind a pram, you're no longer a, a sexy, attractive lady in, in some way, shape or form. For a lot of women who are working part-time in big corporates – they're not given the interesting jobs anymore because they're working part-time. They're not seen as as valuable anymore, which is just crazy. And that's one of the big things we've been talking a lot about. Yeah, I'm sure that's absolutely massive. Mm. Yeah. And whereas, you know, something has to happen so that men are able to go part-time as well. And when that happens, those issues will be addressed. Yeah. You know. and, there, and there are definitely shifts occurring in that way. There are some really great job platforms available now where the recruiters behind the behind those jobs are really focusing on interesting careers for people who want to work part time. So it's definitely happening. And if you speak to the real disruptors, they'll say that full time, five day a week work is going to be extinct in the not so distant future, which is an exciting thing. Yeah. yeah. What that sort of makes me think is that some of these things, you know, it feels to a woman when you're alone or you're behind a pram or you have a small child or you're part time that this is your own 
private personal problem mm. and your own private battle. Whereas, as you say in your in your question, it's a systemic thing. And in the same way that, you know, 100 years ago, Dora Fabian was arguing for communal kitchens just to take that load off. We really need to do something about free and excellent quality childcare, preschool, before school, after school, so that all of that bringing up of children in the best and most wonderful way possible is taken out of that main responsibility of the single, sole, you know, working alone mother. Even if she's got a partner, it really falls to her. So it's if that's taken out, then she's liberated. So in France, it's quite different, you know, because they have free and available childcare and everyone goes before mm. school. So women are totally expected to go back to work and there isn't this big discussion of juggle. They don't understand this whole discussion of juggle. It's a very Anglo thing. <sighs> if only. <laughs> and same with Scandinavia, of course. Mm. Speaking of conventional nine to five work, you being an author, you don't have Mm-mm. that same structure. So, but creativity can really hit at any, any moment. And when you are in the zone, you just need to sit down and get your thoughts on paper and keep writing. So how does that work when you've got three kids in tow? Look, I do know there's a really wonderful playwright in Melbourne who says, oh, I can work at the kitchen table and I can do all that. I don't. I, after my bizarre experience with poor old drive time radio in Adelaide, (laughs) it finally dawned on me that I just had to, from there on in, every hour that I had was going to cost me, you know, $25 or $30 or whatever it was. So I, that's what I did. And I essentially, that was very focusing, you know, to have my time then, I had to pay for it and so I did. So I would just work the hours that I had childcare for and then not. And in terms of inspiration striking, you know, I have like a really messy system of sticky notes and notebooks and stuff. So I'll scroll something down and then that will remind me to go back to it when I've got the proper time to address it. I just – and I'd stopped thinking that – I stopped wanting anything else and I think that that helped. I just started thinking I'm really happy to have these hours that I have and then I tried to be switched on in my mothering time. Mm. When I was there, I tried to be fully present. Mm. Probably very, if you ask my kids, probably really unsuccessfully, you know, they would say <laughs> you're away with the fairies or whatever, but, you know, it, I tried. Oh, my kids are constantly sort of... I'll be away with the fairies and you can in the background hear for the fifth time a question on repeat, then all of a sudden you kind of snap in and go, oh my gosh, you poor thing, you've been standing here asking me this question for the last five minutes and I'm thinking about something I'm supposed to be working on. It's a really difficult thing when you work for ho- from home and so important to have those structure that structure set up for childcare so that you can yeah try and be present when your kids are around. Yeah, and if not, you're paying someone else to be present. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So let's talk about your previous books because they've just been so successful. So Starzyland and All That I Am, both internationally acclaimed bestsellers in their own right. And we'll refer to them in our show notes for anyone who's interested in reading them because they are a fabulous read. But with each of those books comes a launch and I imagine what is a really demanding promotional tour. So You've talked about paying for help. How does that work when you're actually away for extended periods of time? Yeah, that's really tricky. I I, I took babies on promotional tours. Ah. <laughs> so I I didn't really – well, when I, I had to go to – the first thing I had to do was go to London in 2004 
because I was in the running for the Samuel Johnson Prize, which is now called the Bailey Gifford. And I really didn't think I would win. And I was pregnant with my second at that time. And I I think I, I just managed to get on the plane before they tell you that you can't, you're too fat to fly, you know. <laughs> I did that. And and then I took that baby on a tour of Scandinavia, which kind of predictably was really fantastic because I was in Norway and Sweden and Denmark. And there, you know, the publisher just kind of actually went and got nappies and formula. Oh. I was breastfeeding. I didn't need the formula. But they sort of really supported that. And then they looked after the baby, unlike in, they, yeah, they, in I the mean, radio station. just so much more progressive. While I was talking, yeah, and it was just sort of a normal thing to yeah. do. I find in general if I have to go away, I have to replace myself with babysitters or I have to or I used to, you know, make dinners in advance and all of that stuff. And my husband would laugh about it because he was like, well, you know, when I go away, I don't make any dinners and I don't have to replace myself and no one steps in. Whereas if I was away, all these people would come around and say to him, oh, are you okay? And we'll take you out to dinner yeah. and here's some food. And it was really very con- kind of confronting for us in a way as a couple just to see how different the expectations were on mm. women. Because that is just that, just that logistical challenge of constantly having to arrange activities for kids, arrange care for kids to replace yourself is enormous. It's enormous. And the play dates and things, which are all generally organised by mothers. Yeah. So there would be a schedule when I went away that was kind of like, well, this person's got this sport and this one's got this play date. And there's also an unspoken, I'm sure you're familiar with this, kind of trade in time with other mothers. So there's this economy of how many playdates has my kid had at your place and how many <laughs> has yours had at mine and can I help you out with time here and can you help me out with time there? And that's something that my husband wasn't involved with. So he would, I'd come back and the kids would have all been to other oh, people's no. houses <laughs> while I was away so that he had some time. But then that meant that I had to spend lots of time with other people's <laughs> kids to sort of pay back, oh, no. which is all... You know, very under-recognised stuff. Absolutely. It really is. Oh, dear. You'd be familiar with that being away at the moment. Yeah, yes. Well, well, my husband was away for 10 days just before this, so this is actually my payback. (laughs) But have you organised things for them while you're gone? Look, it was a sort of a combination, yeah. Pete is getting much, much better at understanding what that looks like, which is which is good. I think it actually takes going away for that to happen. Yeah. And I think emotionally it can work really well. I remember Craig saying to me, I didn't, you know, when the kids were really quite small and I had been away a lot and done a lot of organising for him. And he would say just psychologically to be at work and to realise that it was him, that he was going to get the call mm. from school or from daycare, that he was responsible for leaving on time to go and get them, was a completely new and mm. different way of thinking about his working mm. life. And when he said that to me, I realised that there isn't a day where almost not an hour where I'm not thinking, when does this one need picking up? When What do I need to do for that one? So she's got what she needs tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. That's, I have this constant as like this sort of mother load track going on that he doesn't. He walks out and he goes to work and he was just himself at work without being doubly uh, kind of loaded. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Mm. I think it's a combination of, yeah, the being away but also a consequence of me probably having episodes where I just can't handle the load and 
you know, potentially walking home from work and me just going, I can't do this anymore. Like I literally physically and emotionally cannot do this anymore and you need to step up and help me out. And he has, which is all credit to him. But the fact that you almost reach breaking point before something has to change is yeah, not it's ideal. Terrible. But mm. also the way that you put that is is the way I think about it too. Or we, you know, many, many women think about it. Like you have to help me out, you said. Well, actually... Uh, you know what, you just have to do your half of this parenting job and as things are at the moment, I'm the one who appears to be asking you to do me a favour, which is actually not what's going on. Yeah. They're your kids, they're my kids. Yeah. Everything that I do that's over 50% is doing you a favour because it's giving you more time and more freedom in your life and me less time mm. and less freedom. So if you think about it as a 50-50 split, we shouldn't, we're always thanking our partners, right, for doing what is their job. Yeah, so true. And I think the really interesting shift that's happening now is that we are seeing the big corporates offering paternity leave, which allows dads to actually experience that from the very start, and they want to. So dads are now being able to step out of their jobs for up to 20 weeks of paid leave, experience what it's like on the home front, completely relate to what their um, partners have been through, but then also that the partners get to go back to work feeling 100% supported. So it really is a win-win for everybody because the dads are having that amazing special time up front and both parties move forward understanding exactly what it's like. If the men take it up. Yes, yes, because I think they know the cost. I think they know the cost to the Once it becomes a prestigious thing to do, yes. to say, I really put in on the home front, I am not one of those antiquated men yeah. who just thinks that without saying anything, my wife will drop her career yeah. for me. Yeah. That has to be a shameful thing. Yeah. And then they can be proud of taking it up. Yeah. And there has to be sort of no consequences for them in terms of their careers to have 20 weeks out, which it shouldn't be. It's not that long. No, it should be a really exciting thing to do. And it's gorgeous. I'm sure they love it if yes. they get it more. Exactly, exactly. Well, that's one of the things we're really trying to push for with this with this series. So let's go back to your books. The love, sweat and tears you pour into them must make them akin to your babies. <laughs> and without wanting to draw any parallels, do you have a favourite of the three? Um, one's no, unborn, I... one's unborn. <laughs> uh, oh, there's a little one, called, a little novella that's around called um, The Girl with the Dogs. And then there's this one coming. I, I don't have a favourite. I don't have a favourite kid or book. I... You know, you're just, you're just doing what you're doing in the moment and then it turns out as it turns out. And then I think it's, it's, it's sort of impossible to say. Both of them were different experiences. So mm. one is nonfiction and that was, you know, going out to talk to ex-Stasi men and, and um, people who resisted them. And that was an incredibly – I look back on it. I was, you know, it's almost 20 years ago that I did that and I just – I'm writing the – screenplay adaptation at the moment and I just think wow I I would not want my daughter to be going and doing the things that I did but I'm really glad that I did them I think it was incredibly exciting to sort of look these people in the face both the incredibly brave ones and just see what that kind of conscience and courage looked like and then on the other hand to talk to these ex-secret service buyers and really try and work out whether they thought it was still justified what they did, all this spying and interrogations mm. and stuff. And then all that I am um, was were a you, novel. Were you afraid? Just oh, 
No, not really. So like in Latin America, my impression is that the, uh, like the hunters and their secret service apparatchiks were a lot more bloodthirsty and violent. And you hear of people who, you know, like journalists who are going to talk to them who end up, you know, being thrown out of helicopters or whatever. Yeah. The East German Stasi were very sort of grey men and they did really cruel things to people to try and ruin their lives, but they did it all by committee. And I didn't feel when I was talking to them in their flats or in, you know, they'd arranged to meet me in the town square and then go into some sort of quiet cafe to talk or whatever. I didn't mostly, I mean, they were creepy, but they were not violent. They weren't going to mm. do anything to me. They were sort of gutless and creepy at the same time. And a bit regimented. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very regimented. <laughs> what do you think is harder, writing a book or raising a child? <laughs> <laughs> That's such an impossible question. I feel like we sometimes think about raising children and we are now today talking about the work that's involved and I think it's incredibly important to recognise that there's a lot of work, domestic work, emotional work, organisational work involved in that. But I, when I think about that question, I really feel like you know, having children is actually about making a big life. This is my life that I'm living and this is the family that we've created and that we're lucky enough to have. So I do think about writing as work, even though I'm lucky to be able to do it. But I try not, it's not the same, it's not mm. the same. So, you know, people, my children are people and looking after them is just a really sort of treasured part of my life. And so a bit of me wants to say, yeah, that's work. But most of me wants to say, well, as long as that's shared a bit adequately, that's my life and the other is my work. Mm. Yes, focus on the pleasure of raising <laughs> kids rather than the, the hard graft, I suppose. Yes, exactly. And in either case, I mean, we know that there's a lot of women and men who suffer from things like postnatal depression and really struggle with that transition. Have Were there ever times with writing a book where it all got too hard and you thought, oh gosh, I just can't cope with this anymore? Yeah, lots of times, lots of times mm. where you just think, I tend to think, wow, actually I've written this line recently just about sort of confronting patriarchy just in the work that I'm doing at the moment mm. and just thinking, you know, sometimes you just, I just feel too small and too stupid and the patriarchy is too huge and I can't kind of confront it. And sometimes it's, I feel like that about, you know, whatever project I'm doing, I think, I can't see the shape of this whole novel or the shape of this whole book or why can't I? And then, you know, I just sort of attack it like one line at a time. And then eventually when you're about halfway through, you think, oh, yes, I can see the shape of this book and I can see what I'm doing. And then you can go back and fix the beginning so that it's it's like that. I just feel, I just want to, it just reminds me about patriarchy. I feel like when you see things we're all talking about what can we do to make visible the work that we're doing. So there's all this invisible work that women are doing mm. and podcasts like this are making that visible and saying this is work. It doesn't have to be a mother that does it. It doesn't have to be a woman that does it. I think one of the tricks of patriarchy is to associate, for instance, care of another human being with a gender quality. So if you're a good woman or a good mother or a good daughter, 
that implies that you are caring for the other people around you. And the discussions that you're having now and the questions which are so clever are about making that care into work that someone else could do that's not attached to your gender. Mm. Because what patriarchy does is when it attaches it to gender, so you're not a good woman if you don't care for your elderly relative or your baby or your husband, that that's exactly, it seems to me, the mechanism by which patriarchy allows men not to do the work and not to see or thank the women who are doing it because it's just associated with being a woman or being a man. Being a man, you get the benefit of all this invisible work without having to see it or thank anybody for mm. it or do it. And being a woman, you have to do it because otherwise you're not a good person. Mm. So to associate that so deeply with our sense of ourselves as people is how patriarchy works and it's how we are undoing it one podcast at a time. I love that answer. Thanks, Anna. Okay, so when you first launch a book, you expose yourself to the public and their judgment. What's that like and how does the spotlight feel and does it affect your family? Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because in the stuff that I'm writing at the moment, I say if something kind of bizarre happens at home where I'm like, okay, yep, that will be me who's just getting the uniforms and packing for camp and dropping at camp and, you know, all the things or whatever it is that you're doing where it's a... I'm becoming such a pain, really, where, you you know, it's assumed that I'll do it. I am now making it visible. (laughs) So I'm becoming this, like, kind of shrew, really. And I say, okay, I'll put my hand up to do that, whereas I used to just do it all. So I I feel like, you know, things will change, but it's, it's, it's important to make all of that visible and then my husband also and, I, and then now it's got to the point where I'll laugh and I'll say well that's going in the book and then he's like oh god and he kind of rolls his eyes or whatever if you're writing about the conditions of production which is my my family life but I am not one of those writers who want to I don't I'm not very interested in revealing my personal life and I'm certainly not going to write for instance about about that it sounds like I'm writing about it explicitly and I am kind of using it and it's inspiring me but I don't want to expose you know it's not fair that is my husband's life and my kid's life and Mm. I'm not going to put it in in terms of exposing myself I feel like it is scary and if you think about that when you're making the work you won't do it yeah and the the real truths that you're trying to get at which you're often hiding from yourself. There's an element of being a writer is to try and overcome the bits of denial or social conditioning that stop you seeing what's really true, good and bad about yourself. And then you stick it on the page. Of course, you can edit it. It's not like being in a circus or on TV or something where you're, you're, being, you're playing yourself and you have to self-edit as you go. You can put it all out there as a writer and then edit it so that other people are not affected. But in terms of exposing myself afterwards, I feel like there's a bit of sort of weird dissociation that goes on. So in order to get at the truth of something, writing the novel was much easier because I'm writing all sorts of things that I've noticed or seen, but in other characters' voices. So that's Mm. easy. In Stasiland, there's a first-person narrator, but she doesn't really reveal all that much. And I think that's because it's non-fiction. So all the time that issue of exposure and self-consciousness is something you have to kind of fight. I think a lot of creative people have to Mm. fight that because you are your own instrument. 
So yourself is your voice and it is what is going to make the work good if you really say things that are hard to say or hard to find and then say. So you do that and then you just kind of vaguely dissociate <laughs> you dissociate in public so that that's written down and that's the work and it's on the page and then there's you and that's kind of you, you sort of back it it's sort of like having a weird well a kid. lot of, a lot of your work is so well researched as well so I suppose there's that element of knowing mm. and feeling so confident that what you're writing is right mm. that's true even if it's hard to see or say yeah yeah and Parents cop a lot of judgment as well, which is just awful because they're really just trying to do their best and get through what is a really challenging time, particularly when you have young kids. Mm. Are there any techniques with disassociating (laughs) (laughs) that you can apply? I think we have to assume that everybody is really doing their best, you Mm. know, and everybody just adores their kids and is really doing their best. I can remember one time... In the schoolyard, when my daughter was really little, I've got two daughters, so she will remain unnamed. And she was, it was after school, and I was talking to another mum in the playground. And my daughter was kind of clamouring and, and pawing at me and wanting attention. And I was giving my attention to this other mum who I was having a conversation with. And then, and I was saying to my daughter, just wait, just hold on a second. I'm having this conversation, trying to finish the conversation. And that is a moment that is always really tricky because you're like, my child needs attention, but my child also at some point has to learn that there's a time that she has to let mum finish her sentence. You know, so there's, that is a conflict. And then this mother who I was giving my attention to said to me, gee, you're handling that well in this really, really awful way. And I just thought, Wow. And then I just thought, wow, she's, she's, I'm giving her attention over my child and she's critiquing me. And she's very undeserving of it. (laughs) For doing that. And I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten it. And I just thought, I really handled it badly. And I probably should have just talked to my daughter and ignored the mum and said to the mum, you just wait, I'm talking to my daughter. But I did want my daughter to sort of learn, Mm. yes, I'm yours, but not every second. And Mm. I'm going to have this conversation with a grown up. And then the grown-up came down on me like that. And I just, I've never really forgotten. I was, I was sort of rooted to the spot in the playground thinking, wow, I've done wrong by everybody oh. here. Okay, <laughs> this is it. This is the final question. We've reached the end of the interview. What does work like a mother-father mean to you? <laughs> well, it's my life, I think, and it's all our lives. We're doing the best we can on all the fronts. Sometimes I fast forward myself 10, 15 years and my kids are gone and I will look back at this time and think, wow, I was so lucky. I really was. I was stretched but I was really alive and I had this great big life and I was so lucky. That's beautiful. Thanks, Anna, and thank you so much for today. This has been amazing. Thanks for listening. Make sure you rate, review and subscribe to help us spread the word and keep those episodes coming to you. You can follow us on Instagram at mothertongue underscore agency for episode updates and feel free to drop us a DM or comment to let us know who you're keen to hear from in future. Until next time, work like a mother father. Ooh.